0: And now, The Federal Drive
1: with Tom Temen. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, July 14th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the Library of Congress marks a year of helping solve small copyright disputes. Plus, July, the time for weenies and pretzels and beer, and for the USDA, Feeding the Hungry. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, when the Securities and Exchange Commission charged Army Financial Advisor Kaz Craffy with defrauding Gold Star families, it highlighted a need to protect military families in their most vulnerable moments. Language in the National Defense Authorization Act for 2024 aims to provide that protection. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr joins me with the details. And, Alex, let's start with what happened to those families.
0: So, Tom, they were gold star families, which means families who lost a, a direct family member who was on active duty in the military, when that happens, there's a, a life insurance policy that kicks in. That's usually about $400,000. And then there's a death benefit that's paid by the military, which comes in at $100,000. So these families have just lost a loved one, and they have $400,000, $600,000 that needs to be invested to take care of them for the rest of their lives. So the Army recommended to them that they go to the Army financial advisor, in this case, Kaz Crafty and he would advise them on what to do with their money. He was an Army reservist working as a civilian for the Army, but what they didn't know is that he had outside employment with another firm as an individual investment advisor, and what he ended up doing is taking their money, getting control of the insurance funds, and going out there and doing super risky investments that they never would have authorized. Here's an attorney for who represents the families. Her name is Natalie Kawam.
2: The families were being told that things like, oh, you have to use him or, you know, you can't be trusted with this kind of money. You need to use a financial advisor with this money. Now, a lot of these families are vulnerable. Uh, They don't know the rules of the army or the military. So as far as they knew, they, they trusted the army and believed that this is something that they had to do or that was best for them.
1: So Crafty, maybe his name should have been Crafty, just to reiterate, was an employee of the Army and therefore people thought they could trust him, fair to say.
0: Fair to say. And I have to tell you the first couple of times I read this, I thought it was Crafty because he definitely sounds like a crafty. He he made some money on this. He took one point six. Four million dollars in commissions and fees from these families, and then he lost another one point eight million in realized losses and another one point eight million in unrealized losses. so each family, if, if you figure they roughly had about four hundred thousand dollars, each family lost about half of the money they had through his investments again here 's attorney Kuwam.
2: A normal conservative investment in these kind of situations would be that you never lose any money. You know, they just will invest the money and reap the benefits of interest and um, such on it. But in this situation, Kaz was telling them, don't look at your financial statements, don't look at your accounts. And he was actually trading on doing high risk trades on their money. Unfortunately, the family's majority lost half of their uh, investment that he had invested for them.
1: Plus, he had a conflict of interest going, too. And that's where the SEC came in.
0: That's right. He had a huge conflict of interest going on that the army apparently has depended on sort of word of honor from its financial advisors that they won't do this sort of thing. So this has gotten the attention of of a bunch of different groups hoping to solve this problem once and for all. Some lawmakers are looking into it. And the National Military Families Association, who advocates for military families on the Hill... They've been looking into future protections. Here's NMFA Director of Government Relations, Meredith Smith.
2: It highlights the need to ensure that it doesn't ever happen again and that there are protections in place and that, you know, when you're dealing with finances, especially, that you have a system to ensure that there's not some other incentive for people to misguide the ones that they're advising.
1: Now, of course, the NDAA, Alexandra, has not passed yet. So are there any changes the Army is making in the meantime in the way they hire these fin- these financial consultants?
0: Well, what's going into the NDAA is an an addendum that would say, if you're a financial advisor and you're going to go work for the Army, you have to have written record of what you're doing, what you plan to do, any disclosures you need to make. So it's no longer sort of word of mouth. There needs to be a record saying you can't have this kind of conflict of interest because There's no way that it's not going to hurt people in the long run.
1: Otherwise, the army had no mechanism for discovering what this guy was up to.
0: No, it's surprisingly casual that they would sort of authorize these people to to hold people's trust and then not have any written record that they weren't having conflict of interest.
1: And would it be accurate to say the army is actually maybe working with the committees on getting this language drafted into the NDAA?
0: The Army's working with the committees, the SEC is working with the committees, and the NMFA is also working with the committees to create language that's appropriate for this specific case. Here's Meredith Smith.
2: The legislation that Representative Sherrill's office introduced, we endorsed and we are excited that it does have bipartisan support. We know that their office is also working with members in the Senate. To have a companion piece on the Senate side that would address the need to ensure that financial counselors are, I, I believe the language is, free of conflict.
1: And what happens to Caffrey? Is he going to go to jail or do we know what his disposition is?
0: The charges have only been filed, but in addition to the federal charges, Natalie Kuam said that she represents 11 of the families and they've filed civil charges and they're going to try and get the money back. Even if they can't get it back from Caffrey, they might be able to get it back through the insurance from the private firm he was working for when he invested their funds.
1: Right. So any chance of those families being made whole again, at least to get back to zero?
0: I would hope that at least through the insurance, they're going to get some of that money. I don't know how much Caffrey's holding himself, but at least the insurance is going to be able to pay them back.
1: Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, July, the time for weenies and pretzels and beer, and for USDA, feeding the hungry. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The annual Feds Feed Families campaign has raised nearly 100 million pounds of food since 2009. The 2023 campaign, just a few weeks in, has the goal of gathering more than 8 million more pounds of food this year. For an update and how you can help, we turn to the Feds Feed Families national chairwoman, Andrea Samal. Ms. Samal, good to have you with us.
2: Thank you very much, Tom. Nice to be with you
1: today. And the acting deputy assistant agriculture secretary for administration, Dwayne Williams.
3: Mr. Williams, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. I'm delighted to be with you today. Thanks for having us on.
1: Let's begin with the overall outline of the Feds Feed Families program. This has been going a number of years now. And what families do we hope to feed here?
3: We're very excited to uh, yet again lead this campaign, the Feds Feed Families campaign for 2023. United States Department of Agriculture, we are committed to feeding people in this country. The Feds Feed Families uh, campaign, as you mentioned, started back in 2009 as an opportunity for the federal workforce to be able to give back an in-kind contribution, more particularly into food, but we also would take time and whatever support that you can give to the food banks in your local area. The idea is that, here's what we do know, is that while we've made a significant impact, Tom, that you mentioned over 107 million pounds that we've collected over the last 14 years, the need is still there. More than 33 million families are suffering from food insecurity in this country as we stand here today. And so with all of that said, this is our opportunity, the federal workforce who never, by the way, ceases me with their generosity and what they can do in helping to, so to bridge this gap. As many of us are aware, uh, the food banks during the summer months, uh, the cupboards are bare. The cupboards are bare and we need them more than ever during the summer month. Why is that so? Well, mostly because uh, many of our school age kids who depend on healthy foods uh, through the National School Lunch Program, also managed by the Department of Agriculture, um, those foods are not available for them uh, during the summer months. We have families who are working and, and really struggling to make ends meet, and we know that because of what's happening at the Food Bank. And so right now, we're just excited about another opportunity as the federal workforce to be able to step in and fit in and continue to make a difference in the lives of the American people.
1: All right. And Andrea, are you looking for donated food items or really cash contributions so that the food banks can use their buying power to to get what they feel they need?
2: Well, Tom, thank you. There are actually five different ways that a person, an employee can contribute to the Fed's Feeds families. Uh, One, of course, is by donating food to a local food bank or pantry in their area. Another way is to donate through a financial donation to, again, a food bank in their local area. They can also participate by uh, contributing, if they're a gardener, contributing food from their garden to a food bank in their area. So, And then they could also participate in gleaning events. And we invite everyone to visit the Feds Feeds Family website so they can look for new opportunities to contribute through and donate through the Feds Feeds Families Campaign.
1: And just a quick follow-up on gleaning events. That is, you can glean a field where, you know, we're instructed by the great book not to glean the corners of your fields, leave that for the poor. So this is to do that gleaning for the poor. How does that work?
2: That's exactly how it would work. You would go to a producer that is interested in participating in Feds Feeds Families, and then work with that producer, that farmer, to harvest products that uh, can then be dropped off at a local food bank. You could also glean at a food bank itself by helping to repackage donated food and package up boxes for families to collect. And we have more information on gleaning activities as guidelines on our website, Feds Feeds Families
1: and this is a national effort i'm presuming and let me ask you this i mean in some areas that are highly populated like the counties around washington they have large elaborate easily accessible food banks what about the rural areas or some of the you know r- tougher urban areas in the country where you know there's not even a grocery store sometimes that's great in those areas, let alone a food bank. How do you deal with the people that are a little harder to reach?
3: At the United States Department of Agriculture, we have more than 4,500 offices around the country. And with that being said, all of our employees, just in USDA alone, and that's not counting because this is a national food drive, as you indicated. That's not counting all of the offices among the other federal agencies in this country, but just in USDA alone, 4,500 offices around the country, and all of our employees are participating in this event. So here's what we intend to do. We intend to work with our employees as we've done in the past and have them to identify food banks of their choice in their local areas. And the food that they collected, those offices, those food are then transported to those local food banks. And so the goal, as you mentioned, is to reach every food bank in this country so that we can continue to make the impact that we've made so far over the last 14 years.
1: We're speaking with Dwayne Williams. He's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Administration at the Agriculture Department, and Andrea Samal, National Chair of the Fed's Feed Families Program. And what types of food, if you're going to donate food, are you really looking for? I mean, like a whole case of Wonder Bread might not be ideal if you can get something a little bit more nutritious and calorie-packed.
2: Well, we would encourage everyone to work with their local area food banks and pantries to see what are the most requested items that they need so that we can provide an immediate impact and assistance to the families in that area. But obviously, we are looking, as you mentioned, for healthy food, nutritious food, diverse food as well, because we have a very diverse population in the United States. So we encourage everyone to check with their local food banks to see what is really needed at this time.
1: And what kind of of corporate, if any, or say community support at the non-federal level do you get for feds feed families?
2: We work very closely with food banks and shelters and pantries around the country, particularly here in the in the Washington, D.C. area. We uh, work with the Capital Area Food Bank, so others might eat. Um, there's also a nationwide group called ampleharvest.org Org, And this is where you can look for um, food banks that accept produce from local gardens. And this way, we are able to, again, provide that immediate assistance and support to those who may need it.
3: And Duane? Because of the way this campaign is structured, many of the families that works at USDA and throughout the federal workforce, many of their relatives are non-federal employees. And so I do want to point out that this this drive and this campaign is being led by the federal workforce is not designated for just the federal workforce. So your families and your friends that may be employed anywhere, whether private industry, it does not matter. What we're looking to do is have an impact because our goal this year is to fight hunger and to give hope. There's no better way to do that than to engage with your community in its entirety. And so that's our goal is to spread this. Why and far to ensure that everyone has an opportunity to participate and to make an impact. And how long does the program run? The program this year, we started in June 26th, and we will run through September 30th, which is the end of our fiscal year.
1: Got it. So everyone who is going to get a school lunch, they'll be in place by then. By the time you're done, everyone will have had access to those meals that, as you say, disappear in the summer.
3: Tom, I do want to add this, though. And great segue to what I want to say here, hunger and food insecurity does not end on September the 30th. There's still a need throughout the year. And so what we're looking to do is not just end it there, although the federal campaign would end there, there is an opportunity to participate and to make food donations throughout the year.
2: Yes, Feds Feeds Families is a year-round initiative that the federal government does. We focus on the three to four months of the summer because that is where we see the need is greatest. And the, as Dwayne mentioned, the food banks and the pantries really need our assistance. But everyone can contribute year-round through the Feds Feeds Families. And we have a dashboard that you can, when you donate, you can immediately see the impact of your donation by registering and logging your donation on the dashboard. And we are very close, I'm pleased to say, we're very close to having donated 2.5 million pounds since the start of this year. And we're, as Duane mentioned, we're really hoping to increase that with the help of the federal workforce around the country to more than double that and possibly, in fact, have donations that exceed 8 million pounds.
1: And there's a special event coming up next week in this program.
2: Uh, yes, Tom. Next Wednesday, July 19th, is the Fed- Feds Feeds Families third annual day of giving stuff the truck event. And it is the Feds Feeds Families campaign hallmark event. At various locations nationwide, federal employees from different departments and agencies will host or participate in events to pack, stuff, load a truck, car, or van with donated food to deliver to area food banks and help others in need. In fact, we know of one Veterans Affairs Agency, which is hosting a Stuff the Stretcher event. So that's very fun.
1: All right. You've got the rest of the summer then. Andrea Simau is national chair of the Fed's Feed Families program. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thank you very much, Tom.
1: And Dwayne Williams is deputy assistant secretary for administration. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Tom. We appreciate the support.
1: And again, they're both at the Agriculture Department. We'll post this interview along with a link to how you can give about Fed's Feed Families at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Navy's pursuit of innovation stretches far and wide. But first, the Library of Congress marks a year of helping solve copyright disputes. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Copyright Office's equivalent of Small Claims Court has helped hundreds of people solve disputes. In its first year, The three-member Copyright Claims Board will help in cases worth up to $30,000. For a progress report, Claims Board member Brad Newberg. Mr. Newberg, good to have you with us.
4: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: And by the way, you're fairly new to the government after a career in dealing with copyright cases as a private sector attorney, correct?
4: That is right. I was the head of trademark and copyright litigation for McGuire Woods for years before coming here.
1: So it must be interesting to see it from the inside after litigating it from the outside all these years.
4: Oh, yeah. Two years in and I'm still getting used to uh, being a government employee.
1: All right. Tell us more about the Copyright Claims Board. You've dealt with hundreds of cases. What typifies these cases that you've dealt with?
4: Sure. Well, as you mentioned, it's for any copyright case, that's a copyright infringement case, declaration for non-infringement, or what's called a misrepresentation claim for a DMCA takedown or counter that somebody put something false in that that's for up to $30,000. Most of our cases are infringement cases, but we get a lot of the others as well and it can be any type of work from photography to music to movies and and so on.
1: Cuz there's been some famous copyright cases of music that have come up in the media and so on, big time, big dollars. But you're dealing with More small fry in general than than famous recording artists that have big albums and all that.
4: That's true because of the limit and damages, the 30,000. So if you were to think that your work was infringed and became some number one hit, you probably wouldn't be going to us. But we have gotten a few smaller claims like that where people have said my work has been infringed and even have sued some larger music companies and such. And and we've had cases like that.
1: And before this board was established, what happened if people had a small claim, say someone copied a I don't know, a picture of flowers and sold it in a studio and said, well, wait a minute, that's a copy of my picture of flowers.
4: Right. So the problem that this is aiming to solve, that the CCB is here for, and we call for short CCB Copyright Claims Board, is that both sides, plaintiffs and defendants, felt priced out of the system, like they didn't have access to resolving their dispute. So your only option was federal court, Federal courts had original jurisdiction over copyright claims, and the average case in federal court could cost easily into the six figures. So if you had a claim that was worth even 30000 but five, ten thousand, 10000 say, there was no real point. And what you had was copyright owners felt, this is too expensive, I can't enforce my works. And if they did sue, you had users of copyright material feeling... Well, I have no choice but to settle. I can't defend myself. It's just going to cost too much. So it's a benefit for both sides for the CCB to be there.
1: Yeah, to take someone to federal court, you might as well have a patent claim like a big corporation. They can afford that kind of dollars. But here we're talking about copyright. And so it might be smaller fry, or smaller potatoes, I guess you might call it, fried potatoes. I don't
4: know. Right. Of course, as the CCB, I'm obligated to say that we think every case is important, but they are certainly for smaller value cases.
1: And can you typify the cases that you've had about the 500 so far in that first year or so of operation? Are they mostly visual arts? Are they, I mean, what kinds of copyrighted material tend to come in there?
4: Sure. So one of the great things we've learned and that we're really excited about the last year is the diversity of types of works. So when we were launched, there was a thought that maybe we'd be all just photographs on the Internet. And while photography is the plurality of our cases, it's only about just under 40 percent. Of our cases, we have another 20% that are audiovisual works, whether it's movies or videos that are posted on the internet, as well as another 20% that are either musical works or sound recordings, and then everything from architecture to software. So yes, the most typical is a photography claim, but we've really been excited about how all sorts of artists and owners and of course, copyright respondents, what we call defendants are using the system.
1: We're speaking with Brad Newberg. He's a member of the Copyright Claims Board, part of the Library of Congress. Do you ever get people that come with a trademark claim and you say, nope, sorry, you've got to go across the river to another branch of government?
4: Yes, we do. We put out a lot of educational materials. We have a website that people can go to. We have a handbook that takes people through each step from filing a claim all the way to the end. But we hope everybody reads it, but obviously not everyone does. And what we do is we have what's called a compliance review at the very beginning. So if someone files something where it's clearly not a copyright claim, something we can't handle, we can't handle things against foreign respondents, that doesn't get served. It doesn't become part of a real case. We send back a a non-compliance order to say, hey, this isn't going to work. And we do give an opportunity to fix it. But as you're mentioning, if someone's just got pure trademark case, they're not going to be able to fix that.
1: And how does someone initiate a case? You don't have a physical courtroom or boardroom, right? It's all online, this whole process?
4: That's right. We are completely virtual, so no one ever needs to travel for a CCB case. What we did, actually, and we're really proud of this, is... We created a brand new filing system from scratch. So if you are an attorney in private practice, there is a filing system at courts um, called Pacer, not to get too deep in the weeds, but it is literally you have to do everything yourself and you sort of upload it. What we did, knowing we would have a substantial amount of individuals and companies representing themselves, is we developed a completely new process called ECCV, not terribly original, but there it is. So people go and they file a claim there, and instead of just uploading something you have to figure out by yourself, ECCB walks a claimant through questions that they need to fill out to say, okay, here's my work, here's how it was infringed, and when it was infringed, and the type of harm I've had or what I'm looking for, and that way, rather than having to figure it out all themselves, claimants can just answer the questions to put together a claim on ECCB.
1: And it can't be just someone was copied. They have to have obtained a copyright in the first place, right, for the work in question.
4: So the way it works for us is that's mostly right. If you want to file a claim at the CCB, you have to either have a registration already on your copyright work. This is for copyright infringement cases, of course. Or you have to have put a completed application for registration with the copyright. office. And the registration division is totally separate from CCB, but you still have to have done that and have to note that in your claim before you can proceed.
1: So simply have putting something up on your website or published it to whatever it is you send things through, your Instagram, whatever the case might be, that doesn't constitute having a prior claim as a copyright itself would.
4: Right. You can't just say, now you get, of course, copyright is automatic. Once you put pens and paper, you own a copyright. But you don't have a registration until you go through the Copyright Office procedures, and you need to do that at least at the application stage before you can file with us.
1: And how are you getting the word out? I mean, the copyright community is millions and millions of people doing all of these activities that you mentioned, and most of them probably aren't all that aware of the Copyright Office, let alone of the CCB.
4: So it's not as easy as... One might think we're a very small niche community of lawyers, like in terms of copyright infringement cases in general, and there are copyright lawyers. Here we are marketing to the entire public because anyone can have a copyright claim. So that makes it a little bit tougher. But of course, you know, we're speaking here today. And the officers and our copyright claims attorneys and staff do other speaking engagements. We have the Copyright Office's um, Office of Information and Education. They put out tweets and newsnets and blog posts. So we really do try to get the word out. But with, you know, 300 plus million citizens and any one of them can own a copyright because copyright is for everybody. It makes it a little bit tougher to get that word out. Sure.
1: And just briefly, what was the germinating idea for the CCB? Was there legislation that brought this into being? Or is it something that Congress just said, go ahead and do this?
4: So, no, it took a while. This is something that's been in the back of a lot of people's minds for a lot of years. It was brought up well over a decade ago. And then about a decade ago, the Copyright Office did a study on it, showed just how much it was costing people in federal court. So there was a lot of back and forth. And then Uh, went through iterations. And at the very end of 2020, it was passed by Congress and what's called the Case Act. And basically, the entire staff, including myself, was hired in the second half of 2021. And we spent just about a year putting together, like I said, ECCB and promoting it and, and letting people know about it and putting out all the regulations because, of course, the act sets up the skeleton, but the regulations are our day-to-day procedures. So there's a lot to be done before we could launch last June.
1: And the board members, you and your two colleagues, then have the power, the authority to say, yes, this was an infringement and set damages for the infringer to pay the infringee.
4: That's right. Up to $30,000 is what the claim can be. Now, there's statutory damages that people can elect that can be up to $15,000 per work infringed, which also is different than federal court, which can be up to $150,000. And then, like I said, there's other things in terms of the declaration of non-infringement, where we can just put a declaration out to say this activity is non-infringing, or like I said, with the misrepresentation, the false statements. The other thing I should mention is I set up to 30000 We actually also have, so it's very streamlined, the smaller claims that we have. There's no depositions. There's no subpoenas. There's streamlined discovery. But for an even more streamlined experience, let's say, uh, you can choose our smaller claims track, which is even a $5,000 cap with even less discovery. And it's much more customized to the case Um, And it's supposed to be sort of quicker and even more cost efficient for the parties.
1: And unlike a court, you probably can't subpoena people or force them. If someone is accused of infringement, how do you get their backside into the court virtually, so to speak?
4: So what happens similar to a court is once we find a claim compliant. So you mentioned the trademark claim that we wouldn't. Once we say, okay, this is compliant, at least follows our regulations. It's the type of case we can hear. Then we tell the claimant, go ahead and serve this. And you would serve it like you do a federal complaint. So once a respondent is served, then they know, hey, there's a case here. And they have a couple of options. One is the CCB is actually voluntary for everyone. So they actually have 60 days in which they can opt out and say, look, I don't want to be part of the CCB. If the claimant wants to sue me, they need to go to federal court or they don't opt out And then just like a court case, they would be here and they're subject to our jurisdiction and we start handling it. We have a conference, we move the limited discovery we have forward, and then eventually we hear from the parties and we issue a decision.
1: And in your job as a member of the CCB, you get to look at a lot of things and listen to a lot of things.
4: We get to hear a lot of different stuff. And of course, as you can imagine, when two thirds of our parties are representing themselves, whether a business or an individual, you know, you get a lot more. um, We haven't seen a lot of emotional cases, frankly, I, I thought we might, but you get a lot more of individuals saying, look, I really want this wrong to be righted, as opposed to outside counsel of big companies that are just, you know, hey, it's another case for me. These cases are more personal to people.
1: Brad Newberg is a member of the Copyright Claims Board, part of the Library of Congress, celebrating a little bit more than a year in business. Thanks so much for joining me.
4: Of course. Thank you so much.
1: And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com federaldrive Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the Navy's pursuit of innovation stretches far and wide. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The Navy now has about 15 locations from the Washington, D.C. area to London to Hawaii, where it's on the hunt for innovative companies. Now, over the last several years, the Navy has changed its approach from waiting for emerging firms to find it to reaching out and pulling them in. Robert Smith is director of the Navy Department's Small Business Innovative Research and Small Business Technology Transfer Programs, SBIR and STTR. He tells executive editor Jason Miller and me about how this approach is working to drive new technology into the at-sea ranks.
5: One of the things the Navy has created is what we call tech bridges, which are physical locations outside the gate. We're teamed with the local ecosystem. So we've got those that already know the region Uh, working with the Navy who knows what's inside the fence, knows what the Navy needs, so we can have that conversation. They're connectors of folks, so we get that conversation started, help them along the way. I really want to reach that sophomore in college today that is working. I'm not sure which degree I need them to have, be it electrical engineering or dance, but they're going to come away with, with, I have an idea of doing it differently, and I remember this conversation in class by my professor who had been working on an STTR about, did you know there's $4 billion in the federal government ready to pay you to proceed with that that innovative thought and bring it to market? And 10 years from now, hopefully she'll come up, shake my hand, and talk about how she got started in the SBR STTR program.
6: Those tech bridges, are they located around the country? Are they located in certain hotspots? Silicon Valley, of course, but also Austin and Boston and, and places like that. Do you know how, how the Navy, the Department of Navy is looking at this? You know,
5: the, the Navy has ours keyed to where we have our, uh, some of our Navy laboratories at our warfare centers. So they're not keyed so much to the, the, the Bostons and the Austins, although we have outposts and folks there. But mostly they're... They're connected with a laboratory, and so they'll usually have that, that key strength. I'm, a, I'm an underwater specialist. I'm an uh, unmanned specialist. So they have those different conversations, but they have the ability to say, hey, you may be talking to a tech bridge in San Diego, California, but I need to connect you with the folks up in Newport, Rhode Island. They're not always going to have the answer, but they're charged to find out who does.
6: When you talk about SBIR and SDTR, what are some of those areas, uh, for instance, we know that you all put out a series of, hey, this is what we're looking for. These are some of the, the innovations we're hoping to find. Uh, have you put out a, a new request recently,
5: or what's the request for 2023 look like? Great, great, great lead-in, because as we speak, the 23.2 slash B solicitation is on the street. It's in the open period, and I always forget the dates, but it's open now, and May. May. To the middle of June. The open period is when you can ask that technical point of contact, the author of that topic, that demand signal, exactly what were they asking for in the topic. Or the way I always like to put it is, who doesn't want to talk to the customer? Okay, so reach out, contact them, and, and learn about it. If you're not quite ready to put in a proposal... It's still a good time to learn about what we're looking for, where the Navy is progressing uh, with its technology needs. Um, we have pretty much three standard solicitations a year, all on our website, by the way, NavySBIR.com.
6: And well, we we will make sure we link to that okay. on FederalNewsNetwork.com yeah. as well, make make it easy on okay. folks. So, so this is standard solicitation two. The, the
5: next one should come out roughly in the fall? Correct. In the okay. fall, although we will have our open topic. Yeah. Uh, As required by the reauthorization of the program, it will get released this coming June. Okay. Now, I like to put it this way there are traditional standard topics. You'll find those in the 23.2 slash B. 2 connotes an SBIR, B connotes STTR, Two, two different ways. And that's normally us saying, we already know what our problem is. This is what we need you to solve. We need you to make this better, this faster. We need you to propose how you're going to create unobtainium. Not quite that far, but we want you to help progress the technology. So it's usually us with the conversation. With the open topic, we're going to at least say, hey, we're interested in AI, ML. We're interested in ways to make maintenance easier for our sailors and marines tell us how you would take your commercially available technology and quickly rapidly adapt it for military use so we're going to do it quicker we're going to do it faster and hopefully you're going to deliver even even that much faster than the traditional way we go forward and so. how do you get your
1: signals from the navy of, as to what specifically they might need
5: literally it's part of the conversation uh and it's right from the, the deck plate where the sailors and marines are talking to us to the the fleet and force admirals and generals going i've got a problem you need to work on this to where acquisition says i'm already working on what they asked for i need to make it better before i deliver it.
1: because there's a big footprint of navy laboratories and test facilities and you go out into some pretty remote areas in the country and way down by the beach or down in the middle of the woods, they're testing some device, yes. and you've you got to know what's already there.
5: Correct. Well, NavySBR.com also has a search engine, so you can look at every topic we've ever awarded. And when you do that, you get two really important pieces of information. The technical point of contact that had that topic, you can reach out and still talk to them. How, did, how is the progression going for your technology? The other one is you get the company that got the award. How was it to work for the Navy? Were you guys good partners? Do you enjoy working with the Navy? And most of the time, hopefully, they're going to say, great partners. We're still working strong at it.
1: And by the way, with respect to some famous tech companies where people didn't want to do military work, do you find in general that's not really the population's attitude? No, no,
5: because industry is truly uh, patriotic to America because they want to help out. There's always going to be the drive for profit. Welcome to the American system. But time and again, I've heard from folks going, I would love to help the DOD, the Navy, the Marine Corps do their job. And we all want to, you know, the whole thing at the end of the day is, did we help bring them home safely?
1: Or did they keep the enemy from
5: winning? There you too. go. Well, you know, it's an old uh, admiral uh, whose name I forget right now, but the way he put it is, I just want them to think that today is not the day. Don't even start the fight because you're not going to win it.
1: Robert Smith is director of the Department of the Navy's SBIR and STTR programs. Hear the interview in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ask the CIO. The White House has released an implementation plan for its National Cybersecurity Strategy. It outlines 65 actions agencies must do to stay ahead of threats. For more on the plan and an upcoming workforce strategy, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the Assistant National Cyber Director for Cyber Policy and Programs, Nick Lyerson.
7: Fundamentally, the National Cybersecurity Strategy recognizes that there are significant changes that need to be made in the ecosystem in order for us to achieve the president's vision. And one of them has to do with the people that populate cyberspace, right? The people that use the technology that we rely on. And the people element is so fundamental to what we do in cyberspace that actually the president tasked out a separate strategy specifically on workforce and education. And that's what the Office of the National Cyber Director has been working on and that we hope to be releasing in the next couple of weeks. I think what you can expect to see from that, right, is very similar to the strategy. It's a strategy that's nested under the strategy. So it's using the same principles that have guided how we look about cybersecurity, but it has within it several pillars and objectives and different elements that we need to see. And I think one of the biggest themes that has emerged as we've been working on developing it is the idea that you really need to push upstream, right, get earlier into the pipeline for the development of digital skills if you want to be able to get the cyber security professionals that we need to see on the front lines defending our networks and oftentimes i think people are looking at the end and saying hey i need someone to come into my sock how do i develop that person but What we've discovered is, in many cases, the answer is, well, you needed to do something 10 years ago to really get them onto this path. So that's a point of emphasis that I think you can expect to see when it comes out in
6: the coming weeks and months. So it seems like there's kind of that dual track idea of workforce getting people in the door now, and then that longer term thing, the education piece of things, ensure that that pipeline is going for a long period of time, that this is a going concern for folks.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, one of the points of emphasis that the president makes in the strategy, right, in the prefatory material, before we get into the parts that animate me day to day, right, the vision that he has says, look, we're going to a clean energy future. It needs to be a secure, clean energy future. The way we get there is technology, And as technology becomes ever more integrated into our lives, we also need to recognize that that means every American is going to need to be equipped with a set of digital skills in order to just navigate the world, right? What it is, what it means to be a citizen in the United States and what it means to be able to take advantage of the great innovations that are coming means you're going to need to be well-founded with a set of digital skills. And one of the things, again, that I think we found is That same digital skill set that you need is also critical to help produce experts, the specialized folks who are really going to help us on the cybersecurity front.
6: Something I didn't hear today, but I just want to get your thoughts on, in terms of that evolving threat landscape, AI is becoming more and more a concern there. The pace of the threat is escalating as that technology gets more mature. In terms of agencies, you know, one having proficiency in the AI themselves and being aware of what AI is being used by the threat actors, You know, where do you see agencies just needing to get um, baseline literacy in these things, become more savvy, things of that nature?
7: Yeah, so I think that there are a couple of themes, right, from the launch that relate to this. So the first is collaboration, right? We're not, agencies aren't going to get smart on this without working closely with private sector, civil society, academia. So that is an important element to how we're going to deal with any new emerging technology or threat paradigm. Another thing that I think we emphasize, right, is the strategy is meant to be an enduring document, and many of the principles that you see in the strategy in terms of saying, hey, we need to shift cybersecurity responsibility to those with more capability to bear it, or we need to incentivize investments in long-term resilience are equally applicable to new technologies like advanced language learning models and what we really hope to see is that as you know there are several societal challenges you know and opportunities that artificial intelligence presents from the cybersecurity standpoint what we want to see is that principles from the strategy in secure by design for instance are incorporated into ai software models because frankly they are software at the end of the day and while there may be some other effects in the economy for instance where security is it may have security effects that aren't necessarily cyber security effects from where we sit in the office of the national cyber director we think there's a lot that you can take from the national cyber security strategy and apply to new technologies like ai
6: obviously one key piece of things is that stakeholder engagement a number of times it came up the the rfi for that regulatory harmonization what ultimately are you hoping to hear from that and and how do you see that rfi uh, making sure that everyone's when it comes to cyber threats reading from the same sheet of music here
7: yeah so i think you know one of the things that really excites us about regulatory harmonization is that we view it as a win-win right where society ends up with better cybersecurity from the critical infrastructure that supports the critical inf- functions that govern our day-to-day lives and industry ends up with better cybersecurity outcomes for less money because they don't have to worry as much about duplicative compliance burdens. So where we're trying to get with the RFI and with our regulatory harmonization work fundamentally is a good understanding of what is a good reciprocity framework, right? How do we set up a system where an entity, a company, someone who's an owner or an operator in critical infrastructure can show that they've met baseline cybersecurity requirements for the common enterprise IT that exists in the banking sector, that exists in the communication sector, and exists in our grid, and say, okay, we've demonstrated that we've met the requirements that we need, and we don't have to demonstrate that in a different way to a different regulator, right? They agree that These are the requirements that we have in mind, and this is the way that you show that. So that's really the framework that we're trying to build because we recognize that if you tried to say here are the requirements, if you start from what are the requirements that we all agree on, you're not going to end up in a great place because those requirements necessarily need to evolve. Technology changes. You know, what was state-of-the-art cybersecurity 20 years ago is absolutely not today, and you know with there are several sections in the implementation plan that are focused for instance on post quantum cryptography and that algorithm doesn't exist yet right nist is standardizing it we expect to see it next year it's one of the initiatives in in the implementation plan That is an example of a requirement that will need to be updated as technology evolves.
1: Nick Lyerson, Assistant National Cyber Director for Cyber Policy and Programs, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.